turn to get to the podcast today. Absolutely, and we're glad you're joining and listening. We do have a wonderful podcast for you this day. We will be sharing the word and, and then later in, in the podcast sharing one of our homegrown songs and we'll have a discussion and we'll just have some fun. So let's get started, shall we, with the word? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure what he was going to say. Today we're going to uh, go to First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, and once again this is read from the message because we can understand it. <laughs> yeah, we hope yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, so the, welcome to the living stone, the source of life. The workmen took one look and threw it out. God set it in place of honor. Present yourselves as building stones for the construction of a sanctuary vibrant with life in which you'll serve as holy priests offering Christ-through lives up to God. The scriptures provide precedent as they say, look, I'm setting a stone in Zion, a cornerstone stone in the place of honor. Whoever trusts in the stone as a foundation will never have cause to regret. To you who trust in him, he's a stone to be proud of. But to those who refuse to trust him, the stone the workman threw out is now the chief foundation stone. The trusting. Um, I just wanted to mention how they talk about trusting God. Amen. And, and then it goes on to say that for in the untrusting, it's a stone to trip over, a boulder blocking the way. The, the trip and fall. They trip and fall because they refuse to obey just as predicted. Amen. But you are the chosen. Okay, so if you don't trust God, you're in the way. You're in the way. That's that's it. You know, and this, remember, this, most of this is really a quote from Old Testament sources from Old Testament prophets talking about uh, the stone that was thrown out and and, and placed in the place of honor. And Peter is quoting that and then basically reinterpreting it to apply it to Christ, which Christians look back at the Old Testament and say, well, that was an obvious allusion to the Messiah, to Christ. And there are many things in here that, that really stand out. For one, to me, that has always been strong to me, is the idea of the third temple. You know, there was the first temple built by Solomon, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then the second uh, temple, which was built by Herod the Great, you know, and was there when, when Christ was alive and it was destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans uh, obliterated Jerusalem. And ever since then, Christians have talked about, uh, is there going to be a third temple? And seeing that as part of, you know, the revelation and the end times when it talks about the temple coming down from heaven and all that. Uh Now, to me, what this refers to, and in the King James and in the New King James and some of the other translations, it talks about being built up into a sanctuary. And there's even songs about, Lord, Lord, prepare me a sanctuary. sanctuary. You're holy. Tried and true (laughs) With thanksgiving I'll be a living Sanctuary For you And 
I've always felt that what it's talking about is that we as living stones are being built up into that third, that the, the church, the living church, the born again believers who are the body of Christ are the third temple. Yes. That's I what I have that. always believed. And, you know, I feel God has shown that to me in this, this scripture and I've shared it over the many years with people. Some accept it, some don't, yeah. you know, but the story too that comes to me when I think of this is when it talks about Solomon building the temple about how how the temple which was built of gigantic stones it wasn't built of like bricks it was gigantic stones and they weren't all uniform they were all different sizes and they were fit together it says with no mortar or anything and it also says that on the building site there was not heard the sound of a chisel or a hammer Mm -hmm. meaning that they made each stone perfect in the quarry and then brought it over and fit it in perfectly, you know, where it fit. And I've always believed that that's what we're going through here on earth. We're in the quarry of the world and the trials, tribulations, experiences that we're going through are the hammer bites and the chisel marks that are making us perfect to be fit into that temple. And that's... that's Oh, Robert, that's a great analogy. That makes it really understandable. And then you can see that it all makes sense. It all makes sense what we go through and what we experience is God's way of making us perfect. And then we become that temple like Christ inhabits. And then it goes on and talks about, you know, that uh, we are to offer up, uh, uh, present ourselves as building stones. It says we offer offering Christ approved lives up to God. Because if we're going to be the holy priests, remember the priests offered up the sacrifices that killed the animals and all that kind of stuff. Well, if we're going to be priests in God's temple, we need to offer up a sacrifice. And our sacrifice yes. is our life that's yes. surrendered to God. Yes, and I offer it to him every morning. Oh, I consecrate yes. myself to him and offer him myself as a living sacrifice to him. Amen. And that, and that, I believe, is the meaning of this passage. Uh-huh. You know, and then it goes on and talks about the relationship of Christ to the believer and to the unbeliever. To the to the believer, this this man this this who was crucified and cast out becomes the chief, the head of everything everything and and is our our living god our our savior is everything to us but to those who don't believe uh-huh. He becomes something they stumble over and something, you know, and you know yourself if you've ever talked to unbelievers about Christ, about how they stumble over it and, oh my God, I can't believe that stuff and all this, uh-huh. you know. Um, so it is. This translate, this this uses the word the untrusting. It would be the same as the unbelieving. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Because we, like you said before, we trust in Christ. Yeah. You know, we trust in Christ. Trust Him to get us to heaven. Uh-huh. I mean, whoa. That's I a pretty mean, good trust. Yeah, all you got to do is look at your yourself and say, oh, you know, <laughs> how's that going to happen? You know, yeah. well, we trust Christ to do it. And so, you know, he, he becomes something we can be proud of. But for those who refuse to trust, uh-huh. you know, it's not somebody who doesn't know. We're not talking about, you know, the guy in Borneo who never hears the word Jesus in his whole life. What about him? We're not yeah. talking about him. Yeah. We're talking about all the people who have heard about Christ but reject him or don't trust him. You know, to them, he becomes a, a stone of stumbling, a boulder blocking the way. They trip and fall. Why? Because they refuse to obey. They refuse to obey. Just as we did. And now think of this. It isn't even that they refuse to believe. Right. They refuse to obey. Yes. You know, how many of us have, oh yeah, I know Jesus, he came, he did all this and everything else, but we're not living the life that he's called us to. 
you know, think about in the Bible, how many people came to Christ and said, oh, we know you're the Messiah. We'll follow you anywhere. And he says, well, come and follow me. He said, well, wait a minute. I got to go bury my dad. Right. I got to go check out my oxen and all this stuff. He says, no, just follow me. Follow me. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be blah, 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 blah. <laughs> But it all but to comes, be happy in Jesus. Amen. But it always comes down, comes right down to what our song is about today. Yes. Do what he said. Yes. You know, if, if we don't do what he said, how can we how can we say we really trust him? And we know what he said to do because it's right here in the Bible. Right in the word. It's not yeah. something we have to have interpreted for us. It's not something we have to read off a list on the wall. It's right in the word tells us. He he tells us how to live yeah. and, and how to be. And it's just a matter of doing what he said. You want that stone? to be your chief cornerstone or do you want it to be the stumbling block we get to decide Amen. Amen. Praise God. Right. Good insights, Robert. Thank you. Praise God. You know, now we're going to go and listen to that homegrown song called Do What He Said. Hope you enjoy it. you enjoyed the song it was one that we had a good time writing and i know it would bless all of you so now we are going to move on to a chapter <laughs> in america it's a good thing i've got oh, a director yeah. i have a big director yeah. sitting here yes robert's going to read a chapter out of america's trojan war for us and here we go chapter 13 a phoenix rising from the ashes Battered, but not broken, the remnants of General Calloway's staff began to recover consciousness after the last salvo of mortar shells exploded into ripping shrapnel, maiming and killing its way through the command center of the North Atlantic Military Division. The mortar squad was made up 12 men. 
that consisted of three homegrown terrorists radicalized on the internet, two gang members who converted to Islam while in Attica, and four sleeper cell members, two cab drivers, a dishwasher, and a loner living on welfare. They were spotted almost immediately by a neighborhood radio car. They killed the two officers in the car, but not before they could get off an alert to their precinct. Consequently, they managed to get off only four salvos before they were overwhelmed by cars full of New York's finest arriving from all locations. The snipers who were surrounding Fort Hamilton were soon hunted down and eliminated. They killed almost a dozen police officers and civilians, but in the end, the first responders took them out. Police firefights were raging around the perimeter of the fort. Colonel Stamper regained his feet. Surveying the scene, he knew immediately that General Calloway was dead. The unnatural tilt to his head and the severe gash in the side of his neck told Stamper that his friend of 30 years was gone. Shoving aside a part of the broken top of the conference table, Rick uncovered Lieutenant Jim Thompson. He was covered in dust and he wasn't moving, but the colonel didn't see any wounds or obvious broken bones, so he gently nudged the lieutenant with his boot. Jim, are you alive? Coughing and sputtering, Thompson rolled to one side and asked, What happened? From the sounds they made when the secondary salvos came in, I say we got hit with mortar fire. How's the general? Is he all right? He didn't make it, said Stamper, as he began to dig around the debris looking for other survivors. Members of the fort's fire department were pushing their way into the ruins of the big conference room. Fire extinguishers in hand, they were putting out small fires as EMTs worked feverishly to save some as they methodically moved from body to body, leaving the dead for later as they raced to treat the living. As the senior man on site, Colonel Stamper took command. Walking into the communications room, Stamper asked, Have you been able to raise the Pentagon? No, sir. There's no response on any frequency, and the phones are down too, answered Master Sergeant Luke Welling. Keep trying and have one of your men get me Admiral Downs at Hampton Road. Yes, sir. As Stamper walked out of the communications room, he was glad to see Major Jenkins coming towards him. Jenkins had one arm in a sling. His uniform was torn and blood was oozing through a bandage around his head and starting to drip down onto his left shoulder. Ralph, are you all right? You look like you should go to the hospital. I'm fit for duty, sir, and I'm not going anywhere until we start landing some punches on these guys. All right, Stamper said. He had known Major Jenkins since his second tour in Iraq when he had joined General Calloway's staff as a newly minted lieutenant fresh out of West Point. He knew he was a talented leader and a determined and dedicated soldier. Stamper walked down the hall to his office with Major Jenkins in tow. Close the door, Ralph, Rick said as he took a seat on the edge of his desk. Jenkins closed the door and sat down in one of the two brown leather wing chairs facing Stamper's desk. Look, Ralph, this is a full-blown assault. These guys have hit us with our pants down. They've taken out command and control in D.C. They were well-armed and well-organized enough to coordinate an attack on us at the same time, and from reports coming in there are attacks going on across the country and around the world. We've no idea who is in command either in the civilian or the military chain, and we've got to make a move. We have to bring this battle to them and hit them hard. I agree with all of that, Rick. So what are you suggesting we do, Ralph asked. We have the best trained and best equipped special ops force in the division right here. And I'm sure after all this, he waved his hand to include the death and destruction around them. I'm sure my guys are suited up and ready to roll. 
So I'm going to take the Chinooks and the Apaches and head for Washington. If I can convince Admiral Downs, I'll have the SEAL teams from Hampton Roads around a few with us in D.C. But with the SEALs or without them, we're going to take the fight to the enemy. Can I go with you, asked Major Jenkins, even as the blood began to run down the side of his face. No, Ralph. I want you to stay here and coordinate anything and everything you can. Try to get the governors to have their guard units move on Washington, ASAP, especially Virginia. They have units that haven't been compromised closer than anyone. And get the medics to bind up that head wound or you're going to pass, lose so much blood you'll pass out. Put it in his hand to his head. When he pulled it away, he saw the blood. I'm all right, Colonel. I'll get this taken care of and get on the horn with the governor of Virginia. Leaving the shattered headquarters building behind him, Rick was relieved to see that he had been correct in his estimation of his special ops team. He knew he was prejudiced, but he honestly believed they were the best trained and most capable ranger quick response team in the Army. He had built the unit from the ground up, hand-picking all the officers and non-coms, who then hand-picked the troopers. Numbering 300 men, they had been together through several full deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, and more insertion ops than he could remember. They were cool and efficient under fire, and all of them were patriots willing to sacrifice their lives for their country. Walking towards him as he exited the building was his second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Huffy Smith, and the three captains of the team, Captain James Grady, Captain A, Company A, Captain Joe Kearns, Company B, and Captain Mahum Sharif, Company C. What are your orders, Huffy said, as Colonel Stamper met them and continued walking towards the special ops compound. We're going to D.C. Only then did anyone ask, what's going on? Answering the question, Stamper said over his shoulder as he entered the compound, which was abuzz with men preparing for battle. D.C. is under attack, Jim, and we're the ones who are going to rain death and destruction on every last terrorist that comes in range, using the outfit's motto, let it rain, death and destruction. As the colonel walked into his headquarters building, he ordered, Mahamud, get the birds ready for full deployment ASAP. I want everything loaded, the Humvees and the howitzers and all the ammo you can carry and still get off the ground. Yes, sir, Captain Sharif snapped as he wheeled back into the early morning to fulfill his duties as chief transportation officer. Joe, make sure every troop has his full kit, nothing left behind. This is going to be an assault on an entrenched enemy. We will need everything we've got. Yes, sir, Captain Kearns said as he too split off to prepare for the battle. As they walked down the hall to his office, Stamper said, Jim, contact Major Halverson. I tell him I want every Apache we have in the air for escort and make sure he has them fully fueled and armed. Yes, sir, responded Captain Grady, stepping into the communications room to transmit the orders to Major Halverson. As they entered Stamper's office, Colonel Smith asked, What's the situation, Rick? The terrorists. Looks like either Al-Qaeda or ISIS, or maybe even a combination of the two, have taken some National Guard armories and punched their way into D.C. They've taken the White House and the Pentagon out. They're very coordinated. They've taken out Fort McNair, the police headquarters, and many individual precincts. They have moved into four hospitals, including Walter Reed. They're holding the patients and staffs hostage. They've got the best we have. Abrams, Bradleys, Howitzers, Strikers. They even have an Apache cap. They've, at the same time, there have been large planes flying into hospitals in neighboring states and snipers all over the place, roads, cities, even some smaller towns. And if it wasn't enough, there are attacks against our bases, embassies, and other assets all over the world. It's a full-blown attack, Uppy. These bastards are trying to take us down. 
Overwhelmed by the sheer volume of what he had just been told, Huffy was silent for a moment. Then he said, How in the hell did these monsters ever get so many warriors right here, right in D.C.? I think we may have paid to bring them in, said Rick, as he thought about the way the administration had browbeaten everyone into a spiral of silence as they brought in thousands upon thousands of refugees from the Middle East, both over and under the radar. Thousands and thousands of the same exact people they'd been paying us to kill were brought in to drive cabs and wash dishes. How could that ever go wrong? Huffy said as both men looked at each other, like two men who are facing an a raging monster their leaders told them wouldn't attack them if they would just let it out of its cage and try to pet it. Both men just shook their heads in sorrow as they readied themselves to face the fact that how could that ever go wrong had gone very, very wrong indeed. All right then. I guess there's no other words than that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> that's all, folks. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. It was good to see you. Didn't see you. You didn't see me. But it's been a very good time. Hope you had a wonderful experience. We love you. God bless you. Yep. Tune in in again soon. I took the right turn.